This is the EWN Radio Network. Welcome to On the Record with your host, Ashram Lux Lucis. Today we have a very special guest in-house. You may recognize from her number one Grammy-nominated hit, Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady, plus many songs from other artists, TV shows, and films, including PBS's children's series, Jakers, The Adventures of Piggly Winks. She has recorded seven solo albums as a singer-songwriter. She and her band were featured in Henry Jaglum's film, Irene in Time. She also scored three other Janglum films. She starred in the play Just 45 Minutes from Broadway. Four of her songs were used in Karen Black's play Missouri Waltz. She has written songs for Last of the Bad Girls, a musical created by Diane Ladd. Very recently, she has co-written the songs for Platypus, the musical. In 2014, her jukebox musical Split opened to full houses in Hollywood. In 2007... L.A. Women in Music honored Harriet, a Career Achievement and Industry Contribution Award. She's written a book, Becoming Remarkable, for songwriters and those who love songs. She performs with her band in Los Angeles and teaches songwriting in person and online around the world. Please welcome the lovely and talented Harriet Shock. Thank you. That was really quite quite something. I'm tired just listening to it. <laughs> I was going to say, does, does it? How does it feel when you hear people reading all of your accolades? Well, it's interesting because um, my careers are sort of like my closet. I add things and never get rid of the old ones. So now I have nine careers that I actually earn a little bit from each one, and I can't say that I've given any of the old ones up. So. But I, yeah. I love it. I I wouldn't trade places with anybody. Yeah. So let's talk about how did you get your start in the world of songwriting? Well, I, um, gosh, I moved out here married to an actor. You know, I was from Dallas, and he uh, had to come out here, and I came, and I always kind of wanted to write songs and had since the seventh grade, but I didn't think anybody could really make a living at that, so I was an advertising copywriter. And that didn't last long because luckily I was, you know, I had some luck early. But what happened was I sang a song in a contest and won. And then, you know, like a baby shark that first tastes blood, I then wanted to perform because I performed it in the thing. So I started playing. Um, a place called um, Bitter End West. It was a gay bar in Santa Monica, which was the only place in the 70s you could play original material. Hmm. So I started playing there, and um, a publisher, Roger Gordon from Screen Gems EMI, saw me there and signed me to a publishing contract, and I made demos of my songs, and then I made an album when I got signed to a record label. My song was on the air, Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady, from my first album, Hollywood Town. A lot of, in those days, 
album cuts got played on a radio station called KNX-FM, and Helen Reddy heard my record on the radio, and she recorded it. And um, she had she was on Capitol Records. I was on 20th Century Fox. And I would get fan mail from people saying they couldn't find my records in the stores. And she, you know, was very well established already. And Rolling Stone wrote that if Patty Hearst had wanted not to be found, she should have been on 20th Century Records. And I, I loved <laughs> Russ Regan, who ran it. But it was a smaller label, and it, it, the distribution was kind of wacky. So anyway, Helen had the hit. And... um after that, you know, I think before or after that, the Partridge family recorded one of my songs from that album called That's the Way It Is With You, and it's still being played on old television shows that they keep bringing back of theirs. And then the title song, Hollywood Town, was recorded by Manfred Mann on his Angel Flight album. So I had three cuts, you know, from that album, and then I made two more albums for 20th, and some of those got cut. So uh, I got my start by making records on my own and having other people hear them. Wow. Now, that's very innovative because, you know, back in, like, this was the 70s, you know, that's sort of a um, a DIY approach, I guess, you know, a little bit. Well, I uh, my record label was not thrilled that everyone else was recording them, and, and I was having trouble getting airplay. But um, the real heartbreaking story is that Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady was coming out, and there were two top 40 stations poised to go on my record of it. And the music director quit the Friday before the Monday. The first one was going to go on the record, which means play it. And the second one was waiting for the first one. So we lost that record, and then about eight months later, Helen Reddy had the hit with it. But I was very, very close to having a hit with it of my own. So it wasn't really a DIY way to go about it. It's just that major artists listened to this station, and they kind of cherry-picked what they wanted to record, and I was fortunate enough to have three of them take my songs.
little earlier, the little girl with the dream, you know, you'd mentioned when you were like seven years old, you wanted to be a songwriter. What did you follow, you know, at that young age? Did you start looking into, like, did you know you wanted to be a songwriter? Like, what was your dream when you were a kid? Okay, well, I would, it was actually the seventh grade, not seven years old. I'm not that precocious, okay, I'm but sorry. Yeah, I did, yeah, no go. problem. I did start writing songs. Uh, uh, I mean, I started playing the piano by ear at four years old. My father, who was a dermatologist, but also a fabulous musician, he played the marimba and the cello, put himself through school, blah, blah. So he taught me to play the piano, and he would tell me which chords, and eventually I would say, I know, I know. And so I just picked it up by ear to the horror of my music teachers because I would ask them, can you just play this song so I can see if I even want to learn it? And then they'd play it, and I'd be playing it by ear. I never learned to read. But anyway, um, my dream, actually, I would go to the grocery store with my mother and stand in front of the stationery counter and just look at the paper and the pencils. And when I was sick, she would read to me and I would write down the words. The, putting words on paper was just extraordinary to me. And so I started writing poems in English class because it was a lot easier for me than writing compositions and stuff. So that started very early. And I was playing the piano by ear, but it never occurred to me, oh, I could be a songwriter. So I thought I wanted to write plays. And I studied uh, playwriting and came out here and studied screenwriting, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. But it turned out that it took only like an afternoon to write a song nothing was going to happen with, and a whole year to write a screenplay nothing was going to happen with. So I opted for songwriting, and when something did happen with it, I was so thrilled that I thought, well, who needs to write screenplays? I'm, I'm a songwriter now. Then, in the 80s, I got back into trying to write scripts and stuff. But when I was fortunate enough to have a hit in the 70s, I became a songwriter. Nice. Yeah. So what was that feeling like when, you know, you're you're getting this Grammy-nominated song? Well, what happened was I was in Dallas visiting my parents, and Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady was not the first single for Helen Reddy. Something else was. And her manager called me in Dallas and said, the radio stations have gone on your album cut. In other words, they've gone on my song on Helen Reddy's album. They decided to play it instead of the single. And he said, it looks like you have a hit. Well, I didn't really understand what that meant because I was still trying to get my own record broken, you know, because mm. I got a lot of airplay on my records, too. But these big stations, top 40 stations that, you know, nowadays it would be considered Clear Channel or iHeartRadio. But in those days, it was top 40 stations. And they went on the album cut and forced it out. And then it got nominated for a Grammy. Now, just to be clear, it was nominated in the vocal category, but it was my song. But I personally was not nominated as a songwriter. Mm, okay. But it's still a Grammy-nominated song, so. Yeah. And how did your life change at that moment? Well... It had changed the moment I got the record deal, I think. And then I started mm -hmm. making the records and getting airplay and touring and, 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 and all that. But then when I had a hit, it was a little easier for me um, to be considered 
you know, a major songwriter, I guess. And so I got to do projects that I might not have done before. I really should have uh, collaborated more. But the label I was on really just wanted my songs. They wanted to put out more albums of my stuff. And what happened was disco came in. And then that I lost the record deal after three albums. And I started writing stuff for film and TV. So I didn't record again until the 90s. Throughout the 80s, I was writing for film and TV. And that changed my life considerably because I was used to being a singer-songwriter and I started uh, writing with a particular composer, Misha Siegel. I started writing lyrics and he was writing the music and we signed to Motown's publishing company and we wrote you know, for all of their projects and we wrote quite a lot together over a 10-year period. And we're still writing. I mean, now we're writing a musical, but that's, you know, there was the 90s when we didn't write. So um, when you're a songwriter, it depends upon the project, what you do. For instance, when Arthur Hamilton calls me, he wrote Cry Me a River and many other great songs, and gives me a lyric, I write the melody to it. When Misha Siegel has a project, he writes music, so I write the lyrics. Usually, I write music and lyrics, but occasionally, I will collaborate. And um, so, you just sort of become as versatile as you can. We'll be right back. I'm looking for a certain kind of woman, and I think you know her. She's an entrepreneur that is highly connected, successful, significant in her own industry, and considered the go-to woman in her community. She's received so much from so many women in business, she's ready to give back to others on their journey, lifting as she climbs. Hi, this is Sandra Yancey, and I'm the founder and CEO of eWomen Network. I'm looking to connect with the woman I've just described who lives in your community so that we might have a conversation about how eWomen Network's proven success system can provide her a platform to elevate her success and ability to support women in business. Our international community of managing directors are influencing the speed of success for women in business around the world. If that sounds like something that you want to be part of or know someone we should talk with, send an email to managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. That's managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. And let's start the conversation. And we're back on the record. Was there anything that you started to study to for your craft to become a better writer? Because I know that you also teach songwriting. So what, what were some of the resources that you used to um, refine your writing skills? That's an excellent question. Um, I was an English major. I always wanted to be a writer. I wasn't sure about the whole songwriting thing, but I did want to write. And I read a lot of authors, and I read a lot of poets. And um, I have some pretty strong opinions about this, but basically I think songwriting and every kind of writing is a form of communication. And clarity is very important. Now, some people like to be obscure and ambiguous, but I think those people are already major artists and can get away with it. Mm -hmm. If you're starting and you want 
an audience, you need to reach them. I believe there's like a tether from your mouth to their hearts, and you have to be clear with that line of communication or they're going to just, their minds are going to wander. Like when I hear people at open mics and they're emoting and they see the pictures, you know, because they lived the experience, but the audience is completely left out. They have no idea what that person is singing about. So um, clarity, I think, is real important. And a way of saying it that is unique and I call it emotional shorthand, saying a lot in a few words. That's what you learn to do when you read other people. If you only listen to the radio and, you know, kind of mostly hear the melody, you're you're not going to be a writer. You can maybe be a composer. So, but for instance, in the 80s, I got a call that someone had just cast the part of Pippi in Pippi Longstocking in the new American film. And that person, the director, had met a friend of mine who told this gentleman that I had written uh, Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady. <laughs> this is how jobs you get jobs. It's so bizarre. <laughs> and he said, oh, I think Pippi is a feminist, so I'm going to contact her to do the, the songs for my film. <laughs> Because after all, she lives alone with a horse and a monkey. So, <laughs> so she must be a feminist anyway. So I clear signs um, of being a feminist. All feminists live with a horse and a monkey. <laughs> that's right. But definitely, all people who live with a horse and a monkey are feminists. So anyway, <laughs> I got a call from—I uh, mean, from this person, a, a brilliant director named Ken Anakin who also directed The Longest Day and lots of great films. Anyway, I I called Misha Siegel into the project because they wanted a score to the film, and he's brilliant at that. So we wrote all the songs together, and um, a lot of people who grew up in the 80s know The New Adventures of Pippi Longstocking. We had enough songs into it in the movie that we got our names at the beginning of the credits, which is pretty unusual. So we were thrilled. and They they play it all the time on television, so that's kind of nice.
So was there you, you talked about you you read other people? Were there particular authors that you um, were fond of and really enjoyed their work and found inspiration in? Well, I I took an entire semester of T.S. Eliot, if you can believe that, in college. Wow. I was an English major, and I I also. Um, wrote poetry by and just went to the professor's office and read the poems and that was very good training but no John Donne the poet and T.S. Eliot and of course Shakespeare and all the great writers and then you know I love wonderful songwriters I mean I love Janice Ian I love Hugh Prestwood and if you study the works of people whom you admire it helps you become a better writer, I think. Were there any um, hands-on that you did with other people as far as learning things? Oh, um, not really. I never studied it exactly. Um, I was in a workshop that Capitol Records put on, and I – learned the importance of visual imagery in songs because every teacher of any kind of writing will always say show don't tell but I remember the moment the light went out off you know in my head when I learned that they were playing um uh the Jim Webb song MacArthur Park and there were all these images (laughs) we're not quite sure what the song meant but if you have enough images in something, the audience will put his or her life into those pictures, and you can pretty much get away with murder. I mean, not that he did. He's a brilliant writer. But my point is, if you're going to be um, a bit impressionistic in your writing, at least put pictures in there so that it's not vague abstraction, that no one knows what the story is, and they don't have pictures. You see, you have to have one or the other, but I prefer clarity and pictures because then people are really, the emotional impact is always there. Do you find it challenging to um, put the put imagery in there without it getting kind of maybe um... – like I can't think of a better word, but like flowery sort of, you know? Oh, oh, no, no. I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of bad poetry because a lot of bad poetry, <laughs> no, seriously, a yeah. lot of bad poetry has a lot of visual imagery that is just full of <laughs> adjectives that should be cut and things like that. I'm talking about seeing it like a movie and mm-hmm. and being spoken to very directly another writer that is really good uh, to study is Charles Bukowski you know he was uh, a poet and um a drunk and a womanizer and and quite insane but he for some reason when my students read him or when i read him the four main points of what he does and what modern poetry does are exemplified beautifully. For instance, he writes a lot in a few words. That's emotional shorthand. He writes visually with lots of very clear pictures. He has irony, which my students catch like a cold. You can't teach irony. You just catch it. And uh, it's very conversational. So if you have all four of those elements, your songs will never sound flowery. No, Mm. no, no. That's a no, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I'm I'm looking at your your book here uh on the website and I like I love this um in part 1 you've got integrity and then you've got if you're doing it for the money you may not make any. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that because you know I I know initially I think I got into music thinking oh wow, I'm going to be this huge, rich, and famous rock star and drive around in limos and all that. And that seemed to be sort of my my driving force for a while, um, other than the fact that I just like the attention kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about that, because that you know that's in everything. If you're just doing anything for the money, you're probably not going to make a lot of it unless you're just working in corporate America and you're just like a, a widget maker type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I, it was pretty prescient because that was before the days of Spotify that that book was written and that I wrote that chapter. Um, this book was put together um, of 48 articles I had written on songwriting and Naomi Healing put it together and made those categories and, and, and titled it. She was brilliant at that. But the thing is, the reason I said that is you can't approach it from that viewpoint because you will then be writing something that sounds like something. You will be writing a kind of lyric that you think will appeal to an audience, and your paintbrush will have just too long a handle. You won't be able to actually be authentic or sound authentic, and no one is going to listen to you. You have to be communicating because you have this burning desire to say something. When I wrote Ain't a Way to Treat a Lady, believe me, I was talking to one guy. I was not trying to write a hit, you know? And I had women calling me saying, I heard that on the radio, and I went home and I told him I wanted a divorce. Well, that was not why I wrote the song. But, you know, if the shoe fits, and so... I think that um, if you get into something for the money, especially songwriting, you will be sorely disappointed. First of all, it's all available for free now. So, Mm. you know, they just passed a law that they have to go up a few cents on Spotify. But when I get my statements and I see the decimal followed by so many zeros I can't even count them all, it's scary. Mm. So, you know, you got to love it. and. I think most of the people who study with me, they they either sing their own songs or they just do it for the love of it. You know, that's the reason to do it because not because you won't make money because there's still film and TV and there are ways to make a living at this thing, but it certainly can't be your driving force. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what some of those ways are, especially nowadays to – uh, make money as a songwriter or even as a performer in this industry that's basically, um, you know, all, all the gatekeepers have somewhat been removed because you can do it on your own. But um, there was an article a few years ago, I think SoundScan put out about how basically there was this huge number of albums that was released in that year, but only like a hundred of them actually sold more than 10 units. What? So, yeah, yeah, because there's so many people doing doing it themselves, but at the same time they don't have the bankroll to finance the marketing behind it, which is what puts you and the superstar, you know, on different planes. The superstar's got the the bank behind them, 
you know, marketing them. And if you don't mm-hmm. have marketing dollars behind you, then you can only do so much. So Yeah, but 10 copies, that's sad. Well, yeah. I think <laughs> the way, you know, as a performer, for instance, you pretty much have to be willing to go out there and perform live because nobody's going to uh, – very rarely do people just buy CDs online or something. They They buy them because you're – performing and you have them at the show otherwise they can just go on spotify and listen to you for free you see i'm i'm not sure what the answer to that is except that if you're willing to throw stuff in a a van and go touring around you can make a lot of money doing house concerts or um planning a tour you know it doesn't cost as much to tour because you don't have to have a full band you just put your keyboard i play keyboard or guitar in the car and go. I I'm going to New Jersey again um next year because there's this one group that really loves me up there and I have to take Andrea cuz she sings back up with me and I my songs are built around harmony so the two of us are going to go over there but it's pretty hard to figure out how to make a living in Los Angeles, for instance, which is a showcase town. I had a very good friend, Janelle Sadler, who moved back to Florida because she can make a living singing. But let's talk about being a songwriter. That's a different matter. You can get your songs placed in film or TV, and um, there's a sync fee involved, and then you make money from ASCAP or BMI on the other end when it plays. In this country, of course, we don't make money when it's in the theaters, but in Europe we do because they consider that, um, you know, uh, a royalty item. So if you have a major film or if you have even a minor film that shows on television, you can make money from that. And then, of course, if you have a theme song, I was fortunate enough to have, I co-wrote a theme song for Jakers, The Adventures of Piggly Winks, and it was in 30 countries. That's the good news. The bad news is it was on PBS, so they pay less. But a little bit times a lot of of countries is good. Yeah, definitely. Talk about performing because that is, you know, basically a a really important aspect these days and where most people are making their money um, other than film and television. What's it like to, you know – are you doing house concerts when you go to New Jersey? Like, what kind of venues are you performing at? Well, there's um, a particular group of people who wanted me to come to New Jersey, and it was it started out a house concert, but she lives sort of in the outskirts. And so um, it outgrew her house, so they moved it into a church. Now, the the audience was mostly Jewish, and many of them had never seen a church. And I heard them say things like, "I saw a church on a tour one time." So it was it was wonderful because they were amazed at the acoustics in this church, and I was too. It was absolutely fabulous. But um, it would be considered a house concert. It's just that there were too many people for it. And you'll find that if you get outside of a major city. People are so hungry for really great songs and good performances, they'll just buy you out of house and home afterwards. They'll just buy every single record you've got there. And they're so appreciative. You know, uh, in L.A., we forget that the reason people aren't buying CDs is they already have two of them. You know, they're all your friends. They're all your Mm -hmm. fans. They've already bought that CD. Now, give it for a Christmas gift. I mean, you can always twist it a different (laughs) way. 
<laughs> but L.A. is not typical. This, we forget, you know, when we fly to New York to look down. There are all these places. These people need us. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your um, your mindset and a vision. Um, because, uh, you know, the things I'm hearing about you and just even talking with you, you're very personable. Um, you've got rave reviews of people just saying that you're just really sincere and genuine. And I was even just impressed in our email dialogue with booking this um, interview that, you know, I didn't have to go through your people and then, you know, 10 people are included in the CC about all of all your people. And, you know, you're like even giving me your cell phone. If you have any problems, feel free to call me here. And I was just like, wow, you know, that's, 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 it's like a lost art of just being a human being. It doesn't seem oh, to. Oh, I hate to much, think that you know? it is a lost art. Thank you though for that. <laughs> I, I, um, you know, the truth is, and this sounds jaded, but Every time I have somebody between me and whoever I'm talking to, um, that person will not do what I need that person to do. So I just have taken it over because I think, what's going to happen? Are you going to send somebody to my house and stalk me? I seriously doubt that. So I think it's much better for me to handle it all, and and it's worked out really well for me. Yeah. And what's that like for you to handle it all? Because that's, you know, it's kind of businessy. And um, I know as creators, that's not necessarily the funnest thing for us to do. No, it's not. And I, I think the weakest area, even though I've been somewhat successful, the weakest area for me is promoting. I just don't know how to do it. I don't like it. No one has ever really done it right. So I just, you know, if it weren't for word of mouth, I would be on the street right now because I get my my work that way. I get my projects that way. I get my students that way. I just don't know really how to promote. For instance, I would really love to do more house concerts, but I don't know whom to call. I don't know how to do it. So maybe someone will listen to this and say, we should have her at our house concert because I'm really good at it. (laughs) Yeah. I I think there's a website that actually – you can sign up on that does connect you with people who are looking to put on house concerts. It may mm-hmm. even be something as simple as houseconcert.com. So oh, okay. that, that might I'll be, that that might that. be an hey. avid, yeah, it might be something to look into. Um, mm-hmm. So then you're, you're booking these shows too. How, um, cause I, well, that's like my least favorite thing is booking shows. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what are some things that you run up against with booking shows for yourself? Well, I I don't do that either. I say uh, yes when people call me. Like there'll be people who come to town, and whenever they come to town, they want me to do the show with them because they know I can get the audience. So I say okay, and pretty much every show I've done in the last five years has been because somebody's asked me to do it. I oh also, wow! Well, I host a showcase also uh, every two months called Snap, Sunday night at the Pavilion. And I've had wonderful, wonderful performers. I um, I had Ray Jessel, the, the brilliant, legendary Ray Jessel, whom we just lost this year. But I, And I have Cynthia Carl and, and, and Tracy Newman, Bill Berry, all these wonderful performers. And... I change them up every two months, and this wonderful venue that has a three-camera shoot, and I put them all on YouTube, and if you just, you know, Google 
Uh, if you go on YouTube and look up SNAP or Sunday Night at the Pavilion, you can see all my wonderful performers, and I perform there too. So um, that's a regular thing every two months. And um, But for my shows, mostly somebody will decide, oh, we need to get an audience, let's call her. Because <laughs> you know? I don't perform often enough that my people are jaded. They actually do come when I perform, so that's the reason. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. One of my mottos for business owners is, you can't do it alone. Whether you're in the startup stage of your business or you're scaling, you can't grow without relationships to provide support, wisdom, and new customers. eWomen Network is your home to connect with other women entrepreneurs who have been where you are or are experiencing the same challenges. We have chapters across the U.S. and Canada that have monthly events featuring our trademarked process called Accelerated Networking to ensure you get the contacts, resources, and leads you need to grow your business. And once you become a member, you get many benefits, including two one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited access to our membership database, your own personal profile page, and discounts on products and services with our business partners such as UPS and American Express Open. Join the eWomen Network community and let us help you live your dream. For details, visit eWomenNetwork.com. And we're back on the record. So how did the uh, something at the pavilion come about? And how long has that been running? Well, it started because 26 years ago I started uh, the L.A. Women in Music singer-songwriter night, which used to be called the Soiree. And I was on the board of L.A. Women in Music, and I thought I saw these um, women doing business meetings and stuff, and I said, well, where are the artists? So I put together this showcase that we did every month. And it had many, many venues, one of which was the M-Bar. That's where we finally ended it because it was just um, – I don't remember how we ended it, but we had 26 straight years, and they thought, okay, we've done this. So then I found another venue for this, and I didn't have quite as many restrictions. Like I could just showcase anybody. They didn't have to submit. I didn't have to have mostly women or anything, but I end up having quite a lot of women as it is. But And, um, and because it was free valet parking in the middle of Hollywood, it's called Celebrity Center, and they do a three-camera shoot for free, I thought, this is the venue for me. So every two months, I do it. And the, the performers are just unbelievably good. I can't wait for you to go, you know, look it up on, on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about um, L.A. Women in Music, because they um, – they give you this great award, um, career achievement accolade. Um, how did that come about, getting involved with them? Well, I I think I was put on the board before I knew who they were, and then I became aware of them. And Leanne Summers is now president, and she is the driving force behind them. She's absolutely wonderful. I, was, uh, I don't know how they happened to give me that award, but it was one of the most amazing evenings of my life it was um black tie red carpet at the hollywood and highland renaissance hotel and 
it was, and all these people spoke about me. It's like, oh my heavens, it's my funeral, and I'm not even dead. But <laughs> it was, really, I mean, you would not even believe it. I'm still thinking about, it. and and you know, there's a video of it online, blah blah. But it was wonderful, and the organization is fantastic. And I'm only on the board now. I don't really do too much, except I'm co-chair of the membership committee, and. Of all the organizations I've been a part of or on the board of, and there have been quite a few, this is the one that really helps its members. It's, it has seminars, workshops, and all sorts of activities, you know, happy hour hang where people just get together and network. And last night we had our holiday party. It was just wonderful. These women really care about helping each other and getting to know each other. It's small, but it's mighty, and, and I, I really appreciate what Leanne Summers has done to bring it into the 21st century big time. Nice. Yeah, networking and, and having groups like that that you can go to and belong to are, are very helpful in whatever career you may be in. You know, find a yeah. find a group that can offer networking and masterminds and stuff like that. How did the book come about? How did you get well, into writing um, the book? Yeah, I had written an article a month for a songwriting publication, and it had been published in different places. These articles were picked up and put in different places all over the country and everything. And so someone suggested I do a book, and I said, oh, that's that's too organized for me. I can't stand <laughs> the thought of all that. But this wonderful writer named Naomi Healing heard about the uh the the offer and she said I will edit this book I will put them into chapter into sections like integrity clarity and all that and um I'm going to call it becoming remarkable which I love that title and um so she did that and Blue Dolphin Publishing published it now they are not really music publishers they usually publish books that are sold in stores that have incense you know, it's like <laughs> they're a lot more, you know, self-help. <laughs> but they are my publisher, and it's out there. It's been out there since 1998, and it's been, you know, selling a little bit here and there. And I make all my students read it, of course. <laughs> I'm no fool. No, but it really, people love it. Even if they're just visual artists, they seem to like I I quote my producer at the time, Nick Vinay, quite a bit, and he was – uh, a brilliant man, and so his wisdom is throughout, and it's good. There's some talk of doing another book now that I have many more articles since then, and so we'll see if that actually comes to pass. Yeah, wow. But something uh, exciting happened today. I just wanted to interject. Um, there's this website called Our Daily Lyric, I think it is, and um they chose a song of mine from my new album today. It's called the song is called It Tears at Me and the uh the album is Breakdown on Memory Lane. And they do a beautiful job. You can see the whole lyric, you can click and hear the song, you can go to the website of the writer. I mean I've been on there twice. They used my song Mama, which Helen Reddy also recorded. Um on Mother's Day, but today they use this song that I wrote for my husband when we first fell in love, and it's a it's a kind of a cool love song if I do say so, because it's hard to write a a positive song that isn't cloying, you know, and uh, flowery like you say. 
So mm-hmm. um, this one is about how annoying it is when you can't get someone out of your mind and it just tears at you constantly. That's why it's called It Tears at Me. But I'm excited that it's on there because it's a very prestigious site, and I love it. I read it every day.
uh, uh, and let's say maybe um, different categories. You've got country, you've got pop, um, and I'm not sure really what's going on in the rock world these days. But do you think that the quality of songwriting has been diminished over the years? Well, that's a big subject. But I tell you, um, I think you can still find really good songwriting out there. There's some country writers. Don't don't make me remember who who they all are right now. But I'm telling <laughs> you, there's some really good country uh, songwriters and singer songwriters, and there's some good good pop ones too. What's happened though is, and I see it with my students. They see certain qualities in pop songs that are going against the convention of songwriting, and they think they have to do that in order to sound contemporary. And I'll give you an example. Rhyming that is so far from rhyming, no one would even know they were intending a rhyme. That's one thing. Now, I'm not saying you have to have perfect rhymes like you do on Broadway, but dear God, some of these things are not anywhere near a rhyme. But worse than that are prosody is how the words fit the music. Sometimes it is so unlike speech, you can't understand what they're saying because no one would accent those syllables that way. Like, I am mm. going down the street to get a cup of coffee. Now, I mean, that's not a line from a song, but that's how they would accent it. So wrong. Mm. It's like they had the melody and they just stuck syllables in there that had the same number of syllables <laughs> as notes. And it is horrendous. It's not that, oh, that's not the way we do it. It's that no one knows what they're saying because they can't understand words that are spoken that way. So mm. that gets on my last nerve, that and the illiteracy of it all. I mean, it, mm. uh, don't get me started. I mean, but they're not all that way. There are good writers out there, but you have to find them, and they're not always on the radio. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like quality um, that's, highly visible is not necessarily visible anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, the stuff that's well, that that's quality and has substance to it, you've got to dig for it, and it's maybe not necessarily on the radio or in the general populace. Right. It's like films. I mean, you know, I, I worked with Henry Jaglum because I always thought if I could make films, I wouldn't even be a songwriter. And he always thought if I could write songs, I wouldn't be a filmmaker. So we, you know, <laughs> we're destined to work together. But I love films. And all, the best films are not necessarily the blockbusters. It's the very same thing as the songwriting thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go sometimes to the Limley theaters and see the independent films. Why do you think it is that the industry is pushing out this stuff that sort of lacks substance versus, um, you know, because media has the power to change the world, basically. And it seems like that they're using their powers for the wrong reasons. Well, I don't think it's quite as simple as that they really have a choice. There's a machine behind some of these acts and the, the story behind them is irresistible, and they get press. I mean, I used to my, – my cousin, Sarah McMullen, 
did Elton John's PR for years, and she was a really great PR person. And she said, you can take your clothes off and run down the street naked, and you're much more likely to get some press than being a great songwriter. I mean, the press does not care about anything but a story that's slightly bent, you know, salacious in some way, you know. That's what the press lives on. I mean, just turn on the radio. So if you know that, then you kind of understand why the stories that make it to having management and money behind you is going to be much more likely somebody who's married to somebody famous or somebody who who did some dreadful thing in the news that person is more likely to get airplay than someone who is simply good, you know? Mm-hmm. Does that sound um, too depressing? You know, it's not that it's depressing. It's just like, you know, kind of going back to like they have, the media has the power to shift that. You know, they're they're making a choice to go after this story because, mm-hmm. I you know, the, the, they want to see somebody fail or whatever, and, and that that is a good story. That's kind of screwed up thinking, you know. It's like yeah, it really your is. downfall I mean, is a great story instead of like you're rising to the top through you know these great means or whatever is a good story. You know, I I once read or, or heard somewhere that there was this um, TV station that broadcast just all good news. It was oh, like nothing yes. but good news. I know news. what you mean. Uh-huh. And, and what happened went, to it? Boop, it went away. And it's like, well, uh-huh. did it go away because people don't really care about good news? Or or because the, the, the bad news promoters put it out of business, you know? It's a really um, good question. I don't believe that most people just want bad news. But yeah. it... Um, it it piques their interest to find out what's going to happen next. It's like you don't describe a calm day. You describe the storm, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. unfortunate. But the the good thing is now that we have YouTube, really good stuff can go viral. Mm -hmm. You know, mostly it's very funny or, or very edgy, but still you can get an audience out there. It's not like it used to be where the gatekeepers did everything. Yes, airplay and the media is, you know, their priorities are really up, up downstream somewhere, but you can get people to listen to you. And I I depend on that for my students and for me and for everyone I consider a little bit better than what's on mainstream radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Harriet, we are nearing the end, and I always like to save a little space for our guests to provide some final words of wisdom to the listeners. Is there anything you would love to share with us? Well, um, I just love this. I don't like the business, but I love the art form that I am in. I love being a songwriter. I love helping other people get to the next level in their songwriting. And I, um, I think the best advice I could give anybody is to just be as authentic as you can, communicate clearly from who you are to somebody specific, and um, study all the great writers, not just the great songwriters, the novelists, 
the poets and the songwriters. And remember that you're doing this because you have to. And don't give up just because nothing's happened this week. You know, this is your chosen art form, and it is your responsibility to do your best at it and continue to do so no matter what. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of On the Record. Tune in next week.